0: This presentation is from UX Australia 2022, day two. Who speaks for your work when you're not in the room? So when you wanna explain the design and defend the integrity of the process, how does that work if you're not there? And sure, there are the the people that you've met one-on-one through the, the, the workshops, and the stand ups and the showcases and the roadhouses and all of the agile pantheon of things. But what about when that person needs to explain it to someone else? And so this is where our writing comes in. And um, today I'm not going to be talking about content design and content strategy and how content and UX fit together. I'm going to be talking about the writing that we do as designers when we try to explain the work to other people. So um, what does this matter? Well, I was talking about this with Donna who's one of the co-founders of this uh, conference, and um, Donna said, if you haven't written written it down, it's ephemeral. So ephemeral is like a flower or a boy band. It's here today and then gone tomorrow. Um, So she says, if you haven't written it down, it's ephemeral. And if it's ephemeral, it's a big, fat waste of time. this is the quote for people who like to take photos of quotes. All right, so when I was um, doing this doing this talk, preparing for it and the, and the workshop as well, I spoke to a bunch of designers about writing. And what I heard was that, you know, the, the people who are writing about their design work, they want to see their work being implemented because clients actually understand it, right? and they want to feel more confident about their writing. And this could apply to emails, to reports, artifacts, proposals, business cases. And then when I spoke to the senior designers and design managers, what they said is, I want to spend less time reviewing my team's work and just kind of telling them the same stuff over and over again, like full stops or a thing or whatever, um, and be able to add more value and also to see our work being implemented. So there's this real need there, but um, I wanted to do a quick show of hands. So to get where you are in your career, hands up if you've done a course that taught you how to create things. Big or long, okay. All right, please keep your hands up. So, all right, Um, keep your hands up if that course explicitly taught you how to write about it. All right, not many so we're being asked to do this thing that's important in our work but we are not being taught how to do it Um, now before i go any further i should probably just destroy any credibility that i might have to stand up here and teach you how to write about your work because uh, a couple of uh, a couple of months ago two months ago i put in a proposal and it was for a big content strategy for a government department Done this kind of work before. We'd worked with the department before. We had relationships in there. We had an approach, so we put in a proposal, and we lost. Came second. And uh, if you've ever been in that position before, then you know that for a while you can get tunnel vision. You know, you just see the loss. And so for a while, I forgot about what we've achieved. So I ran a team of twenty plus content strategists, content designers. We've tackled some of the biggest, messiest content problems around. And I've looked at communication and content from pretty much every angle imaginable. And I lost perspective on that. And I just saw the loss. And even worse, uh, I realized that in about two months' time, so today, I was going to have to stand up here and talk to you about how to write. So I was thinking what right do I have to teach people about how to write, including how to write proposals, uh, when I didn't win that one. So I felt like a bit of a fraud. And then I remember this guy, Thomas Mann, um, sexy beast. And Thomas Mann said that a writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult than it is for other people. A writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult than it is for other people. So in other words, whatever you dedicate yourself to, design, writing, that's going to mean that you're going to struggle with it. And if you struggle with something for long enough, then you start to notice patterns, and you start to see principles. And so I've been struggling with writing professionally for more than 25 years. and. Over that time, I've learned some principles, some things that you can apply to any writing that you do in your work as a designer. And there's no silver bullets, right? You're not going to win every proposal or convince every client. But I want to think about these principles as kind of a lens that we can use to look at our writing. So I can't promise you that it will solve all of your problems, but I can promise you that it will make things better. All right. Principles. We've got the curse of knowledge, front loading, abstraction, layering, storytelling. First one. (laughs) The curse of knowledge. (laughs) All right. Uh, So, the best way I can explain this one is one of the psychological studies where this bias was first discovered. So, I want you to imagine that there's this psychological study room, you know, it's fairly sparse, there's just a table in the room, and in one of those two-way mirrors so that the psychologists can be observing what's going on. Has everyone seen those? Seen those in movies? Cool. <clears throat> All right, so into the room with the table, we bring Joey. Joey's about five, and he looks on the table and he sees a packet marked M&Ms. What does Joey think is in the packet? Okay. So then they open up. Inside the packet is pens, the bastards. So then they take Joey out and they bring him into the observation space with the psychologist. All right, that's the end of round one. Following so far? All right, cool. So then they bring in Susie. She's about five as well. Susie's standing there looking at the packet. Now Joey in the observation room with the psychologist, and the psychologist say to Joey. Joey, what does Susie think is in the packet? What does Joey say? Okay, so we who okay, who votes pencils? Who votes All All right, so the age thing here is crucial because Joey's about five, so he hasn't yet developed a theory of mind. So Joey, which means being able to imagine what's going on for other people, right? So Joey says that Susie thinks pencils, OK? So in other words, he's projecting his knowledge onto Susie. When she doesn't know what's in there, she's hoping for M&Ms. Uh So this is the curse of knowledge, and it has two implications for us as designers, good news and bad news. So the good news is that we're always going to have work, because the curse of knowledge means that we'll always have subject matter experts, stakeholders, clients, who are too close to their thing in other words the curse of knowledge means that we project our knowledge onto other people we think that they see the world the way we do that things make sense to us make sense to them so it's always going to be this gap that we can fill always going to be work the bad news is when we come to write about our own stuff because we're the experts in what we meant to say So this means that when we read what we've written, we don't see it as other people are going to see it. We see what we meant to say reflected back at us. Does that make sense? All right. So number one, this is why we need other people to help us with our writing, as indeed we do in so many other aspects of our work as designers. But it also means like we're not going to be able to to go, Pat, help, you know what should I do here what does this mean to you all the time because uh, Pat's going to get annoyed so what we do instead is come back to some of the principles that I'm going to share with you all right next front loading I, I love that I say front loading and people oh, better, I better this, down. <laughs> this is going to be good um, thank you it's really validating um, so front loading means taking the most important interesting information put that first then the second most important information, put that second, wait for it, third most important, and so on, until you get to the less important information. So it's still not irrelevant, but it's just things that are a bit more niche or a bit more peripheral, right? Now, where this concept came from is old school journalism. So the journalist would get a commission to write a story which he or she would write, not actually knowing the total amount of space that they were going to have to fill. So they would write it so that the most important message was right there at the top, so if the copy editor had to trim it, the copy editor cut off something and the story would still get across. So have you ever read a newspaper article and noticed that you can tell what it's going to say what it's all about just from reading the first paragraph? All right. Have you ever read a newspaper story and got a bit distracted and gone off to read something else partway through? All right, so front-loading is a brilliant tool and metaphor for how attention works as well. So you've heard uh, Don't Make Me Think, Steve Cook, right? So what this means for our writing, don't make me read 16 pages of your report before I can figure out what the heck it's about. Um, so the tricky thing for us is that we will tend to write chronologically in our experience of doing the work. So we'll say there was a thing that you asked us to do, then we did our research, then we thought about some stuff, and then ta-da, here we are with the solution. Now, um, Michael Montero did a brilliant course on presentation skills that I did recently. So he says the client doesn't care how hard you worked. You know? So. Most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time, we should be leading with the solution. Um, So what I would say to you is actually ignore what I just said, because it's going to be really, really hard for us not to write chronologically. So what I'd say instead is do that, get it out of the system, and then come and edit it. Go like, like, what's the goal here? Then bring that up to the front. So it's in the editing process that comes through. The thing I love about um, the front loading model is that it's fractals, how many times have we mentioned fractals this conference? Like two, three, anyway, so fractal, by which I mean it can apply at every level in your content. So just for argument's sake, let's say we're doing a report right, so the executive summary, the first thing that people read should give you the entire gist of the report, so people only read the executive summary they're going to come away knowing what it's about, then The first paragraph in the executive summary should set things up. And then the first sentence of each paragraph should set up the paragraph that follows, right? So at every level of your writing, we're going to be thinking, what should we be front-loading here? All right, real-life example. Doing some work with Healthier Work ACT. So it's an ACT government program trying to change the culture of work in Canberra. So it's less about let's make people do 80 hour weeks and then give them a muffin and a yoga class and then call that wellness. It's more about changing the practices of work design so employers have a duty of care to look after their employees' physical and psychological safety. So we're doing a content strategy for them. And this is the table of contents that I had done. So introduction, current savior content, future savior content, roadmap, and. I like to often um, show rough drafts to clients early. So I showed it to my client, Carice, and she was like, yeah, it looks good, looks fine. Yeah? And you know how sometimes you need to actually give clients permission to tear your work to pieces. So like, no, Carice, what do you think about this? What do you think about the structure here? So what she said was that we actually know that our content's not very good. So I want you to just get straight into the, the future state. You know, What should this look like from here? And then give me the current state analysis towards the end for the people who need to who need to see it. All right. Uh, making sense so far? All right, cool. We're going to do a real life example. So um, if you have phones, take them out, scan your Q- uh, scan the QR code here. It will bring you to a sample of a proposal by a fictitious human-centered design company called Flange. Um, please stick your hands up. I'll stick hand up when you have a, have a view on what they should be front-loading. In other words, what they should be putting first. So your requirements, yeah, any other takes? So there's actually, like, I've seen this done well a couple of times. Leading with your requirements is the most common one. There are other ways of doing it, but the one wrong answer is leading with about us, right? Because the client wants to know, have you understood my problem? You know, and do you have a vision for solving it? So the other thing you'll sometimes see is like, it's leading straight into the the future state, Um, but never with the about us. It's just too egocentric. All right, so front-loading, most interesting information first. Next up, layering information. So there's a brilliant model by um, Dr. Jimmy Reddish, and it is the bite, the snack and the meal. So what this means for a content is the the bite is like the the smallest possible unit of information. Often that's going to be a heading or a a really quick summary. The snack kind of expands and contextualises the bite. It'll often maybe give you a key message. And then a meal is the entire thing, the whole shebang. Sometimes a bite, snack, and meal will be in the one piece page. It might be layered across an experience. Um, Real-life example, this talk. So the bite was um, what you would have seen on the presentation listings page. There are many others, but that's it. Then if you click on the read more, you get the snack, which tells people kind of what to expect. Uh, And then the meal is the banquet of thought leadership deliciousness that we are consuming together right now. Um, what I often see done badly is, um, skipping a snack. So most people understand the idea of the bite, like give it a heading or kind of set it up, but a lot of time, uh, people just jump straight to the meal, like throw people into the weeds without giving them anything to contextualize that. So, um, here's a real life example. This is a report done by another vendor provided to my client that my client then gave to me does that make sense yep so i've anonymized this but um or de-identified it but so it's this is the bite so we've got intersection audience identify, and prioritize workshop then the next thing that you see is this right so it's throwing people straight into the meal they're kind of going what what, what do i make of this so layering information is considering the level of detail that you're going to give people and kind of revealing things progressively so that they can decide whether they want to explore more or not. Key thing here is that the goal isn't for people to read every single word of our content, okay? If people skip through our content and get what they need, that's, that's good, okay? So it's not to make people read start to finish, it's to be useful. All right, next one. Ladder of abstraction. Um, does anyone have a pen I can borrow quickly? Real quick? Okay. Thank you. All right. Um, so, cool. So, where's uh, this is so nice. Oh, yeah, all right. So this is a um, Sketch 1 pen. Um, and then we we'll go pens. Then we go stationary, inventory, and so on. Thanks. Uh, by the way, I like I um, grew up with my, my grandmother and my mum and all of the pens in the entire house would like somehow magically wind up in my room. So well done for getting it back. Um, <laughs> all right. So you can see we are. So what we're doing here is moving from the particular to the slightly broader, slightly broader and so on. So we're moving essentially from I can't you see it sort of cut off there, but there's concrete down the bottom abstract up the top concrete concrete (laughs) concrete (laughs) is the particular abstract is the general, so as you move up you're going you're getting into themes trends generalizations and so on. Um, Now, can everyone in the room, if you're able and comfortable, please stand up for a sec. All right, so. Um, if you naturally kind of a big picture think you like to start with the, the vision uh, and then work, work you know, through like out from there, please put your hand like way up here. Conversely, if you like to start with the detail and build up from that, put your hand there. OK, I think a fair bit of big picture somewhere in the middle. Um, cool. All right. So um, thank you. Sit down. So um, first thing is, neither is better or worse than the other. Objectively, um, I'm autistic and ADHD, so I do really well at the extremes and not so much with anything in the middle. It's all about knowing where our audience is, where we tend to be and how we need to move. Right. So if you tend to be more abstract, the key question for you is what's that? All right. Give me an example. Tell me what that looks like in practice. Can you flesh that out for me? Um, So here's an example of something that's a little bit too abstract, flange. We exist to unlock tomorrow. Have you ever seen a human-centered design website that's a bit like this? Where you kind of go, I feel so deeply moved, but I've got no (laughs) idea what you actually do, okay? So that's too far up here. But then conversely, um, if we're too down in the weeds and the details and the concrete, the question for us will be, what's that? Or oh, sorry, so what? Um, here's an example here. Australia's largest trading partners measured by trading value, added by destination of final demand, 2011. So, so what? What am I supposed to take away from this? Now, because of the curse of knowledge, The so what is going to be obvious to us. If you come from a a data or a research background, this might be a challenge for you. So we're talking about the five why's just a moment ago. I'd have the five so what's. So you give a fat and you go, so what? So what? So what? So what? So what? All right. So you keep doing that until you you get somewhere sensible. Um, Let's do a real life example. Imagine that this is in uh, a user um, testing report. Users added an item to cart in twenty percent of cases. Who can give me a so what? Please stick your hand up if you've got an idea. Pat. All right, great. Someone else. So what? So Pat said people are adding things to cart in one in five cases. So what? Or don't, because they're only adding at twenty percent of the time. But that's you see how we're kind of going from the the particular to something that's a little bit more like the, the big picture. And it's, again, it's just about thinking where is our audience. Um, and again, you're going to probably need to push to so what a couple of times. Um, all right, next up, story. Um, thank you, Joel, for the, for the presentation. I really enjoy that man. We'll talk talk later. Um, so. Elements of story. Actually, no. I should set this up. Why story? Um, can't go. Actually, there's all these weird buttons. If I push one, it'll the thing will probably like take wings and fly off. So, all right. Why story? Um, number one, we are wired to learn through observation and through story. We're not wired to re- to learn through playbooks. You know, linking back to Richard's talk. Okay. So, exploring how we can bring stories into the way that we describe um, our practice designers is going to help us make it connect. And there's opportunities to do that in how we bring our research to life. Uh, there's opportunities certainly in how we frame our artefacts. You could also say that the proposal is a story of the project as we see it. And so, when we got feedback on that gig that we lost, that I mentioned at the start. Um, There were two things. One was kind of ideological, in a way, or values-based, that we said we'd do a number of in-depth interviews. Someone else said, oh, we'll just do a whole bunch of 30-minute interviews, and that will be enough. Um, But the other thing was I said we didn't get a clear sense of how the research was going to flow through to the final product. In other words, we didn't tell a clear enough story. So again, the role of the principal is like, cool, that is something I can work on for next time. Elements of story. A good story has character. So someone to identify with and to care about could be a user, could be the client single and sells in a story. There's stakes. So there's a reason to care. Something is at stake. And there's movement. So Joel's talk about uh, narrative structures. That's movement. Um, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened is not movement. It's exhausting. Um, so movement is how one thing sets up the thing that follows, And in resolution is the final so what. You know, where do we leave things? Um, I wanted to give special mention to case studies because they're often done terribly. All right. The client asked us to do some work. We knew it would be awesome going in, and sure enough, we were. Everything worked out exactly as expected, (laughs) right? So nothing's at stake in that kind of story nothing's really nothing's really learned like sure they got the work but nobody grows um Seinfeld we learn nothing um so I wanted to um share with you a framework for thinking about the type of communicator that you are number one and and I just thought medieval fantasy might help to ground things for some reason so first one is the bard so the bard describes things in linear time start at the finish, end with how the monster was vanquished. So the payoff is right at the end. Now, this can work, but for it to work, there needs to be a very high degree of trust from the listener to the storyteller that it's going to be worth it. And often, as designers, we haven't earned that trust or our clients' impatient. They want the payoff at the front, like the healthy work example. All right, next is the steward. They just list facts like, your majesty, we have 10 head of oxen and 500 flagons of finest mead. Right? It's just essentially a list, and it's up to others to interpret. Right? That's often really down here in the concrete. Okay, And then finally, the scout. Uh, your majesty, we're being attacked on the Western Front. So the payoff or the significance is right up front. This is front-loading. And then what happens next is disclosed progressively. Um, so you can switch from Scout to Bard. How did this happen? Well, Your Majesty, it all began when we cut the military budgets three years ago. Um, or, Stuart, what are our losses? Well, Your Majesty, we've lost so many archers, etc. Um, now, again, the point here is not that one is objectively worse or better than the other. It's all about where do we need to be at any particular time? Um, who reckons they have a default to Bard? couple of people, who tends to be a steward? All right, I love of people being honest. And who's a scout? Who really cuts straight to the chase? All right, so again, when do you need to move and how? So you might be listening to this and thinking, that all makes sense. Gosh, that was a great talk, five stars. But then you're going to go back to your desk, home office, um, kids bedroom, which is where my desk is, uh, and then go, like, what do I actually do? How do I apply all this stuff, front-loading, letter of abstraction, and so on? And the way that you can think about this is your customer's customer's customer journey. So in other words, different stages of our interactions, gathering support, pitching, negotiating scope, discovery, delivering a thing, nurturing, ongoing conversations, maybe loop it back around. Um, So let's say, for example, when you're gathering support, trying to get people excited, um where do you reckon you should be on the ladder of abstraction like high up in revision or down here in concrete someone says way up top yeah okay so by thinking about the context of your engagement you can inform your approach so finishing up i want us to stop thinking about writing this god-given talent that some have and some don't i want us to think about it instead as a craft that we can all get better at with practice the question though is how we get better at practice, how we get better at writing. And um, I found this website recently. So the idea is that uh, it uses AI to generate inspirational quotes, like this one. <laughs> um, and so the idea is skip through all of the struggle and just get to the inspiration. But the thing is, the struggle is the entire point, right? And it's in the struggle that you iterate. So I did this um, talk, well, as a three hour workshop last year at UX Australia, then delivered it for a couple of consultancies in-house, then I had a break. And then I um, came to prepare this, this talk today and I looked at the slides that I'd done back then and I was like, mmm. uh, So it was good, it worked, people liked it, but I could see ways of distilling it, ways of making it better. But the point is I needed to do that, to be able to do this, right? So there aren't shortcuts. There are ways of moving faster or slowly, but you need to be the writer that you are now so that you can become the writer that you want to be. Couple of final thoughts. Number one, writing is a team sport. Because of the curse of knowledge, because we have different skills to bring, I would really encourage you to think about how you can lean on people in your team to help you get better. How can you um, bring peer review? into the writing that you do. It could be as simple as you're writing a sensitive email to a client who's being a bit special. Um, Rich, can you please read this email before I send it? Um, The final thing, though, is that um, because I am an introvert uh, and we have limited time, I'm not going to be able to talk to all of you one on one. So if you like, go to the link. You can pop in your email. It'll ask you what writing things you struggle with, And then I will send you advice for your question. You will not go on my mailing list. I will not send you once in a lifetime real estate investment opportunities. (laughs) It's just advice done. Um, Thank you so much for listening. good to be with you all.